Hey everybody, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan, builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Real Talk Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. We got uh, a good episode for you. I've got John Winnia on the podcast uh, from the uh, LCRSS, which is the League of Canadian Reform School Societies. Uh, it's a mouthful, but uh, John is the coordinator for the league. Um, and I found a great intro for him in uh, an article that Mark Penick had just uh, dropped about 10 days ago on uh, RP's website. So he says... If there is one man who has his finger on the pulse of reformed education in Canada, it's John Winnie. So there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty nice. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I'll throw it over to you. Uh, maybe you can give everyone a, a bit of a background. Where do you, uh, where'd you get educated? where did you start your career and how'd you end up at the league? Yeah, sure. So yeah, like, uh, like Tyler said, my name is John Winnie. I'm uh, the league coordinator for the league of Canadian Reform schools. I, um, and the son of Reverend Winnie, who was on the podcast. So that's something uh, most people like to get out of the way right yeah. away when I meet people. It's like, do you know the minister? Yeah, that's my dad. So yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, that means I kind of grew up all over the place. So Tyler's in Calgary now. I was in Calgary for a little bit. I was uh, also in Wyoming, Ontario for a while. I did um, uh, my education. I attended Redeemer University and I did uh, an honors BA in history there. And I also did my uh, my teacher training there. So yeah, after that, then I uh, took a teaching job at the Coldale Christian School out in Coldale, Alberta, and uh, spent three years there. And then uh, took a job back in Ontario at Hope Reform Christian School, which was just a a, a startup school. Um, they were just uh, one year into their existence. And I came on board kind of with the idea of helping them get their high school established. So Hope is a K to 12 school. And uh, the idea was to, you know, add a high school. And I did a fair bit of work with that. And that is basically also kind of how I found my way to becoming the lead coordinator. So, um, you know, working with a startup school, you realize how much work there is to be done for a school to run, how much uh, policy development needs to take place, curriculum development needs to take place, all the all the day-to-day operation stuff that you need to kind of figure out mm-hmm. along with figuring out your identity and your purpose and, you know, the day-to-day teaching of the students, there's all the background sort of stuff. And I got quite involved in hope um, with, uh, you know, I was on uh, right from the get-go, I was on the IT committee and then uh, I became the vice principal for the high school. And then I got involved with uh, curriculum work and with the ed committee and um, also eventually onto the policies and procedures committee. So I was pretty involved in a lot of different aspects of the operation of the school. And uh, I really enjoyed also that part of it, right? So I went into teaching because I wanted to help students learn about a reformed worldview. Um, but yeah, kind of being involved with the, uh, the setup and the direction of the school from the, from the parents and helping parents to make their school a reality, that was kind of a really big um, 
delight for me. I really enjoyed that part of the work. Uh, and then when I heard that the lead coordinator position was coming open, I uh, gave Jason Heemskirk a call and uh, we sat down and talked about what was all involved in the role. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like something I'd be really interested in. And that's how I became lead coordinator eventually after, you know, the process of applying and interviewing and all that good stuff. So, right. Oh, cool. It sounds like you just like committee work. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> I did. So there was an article in Clarion that talked about, uh, too much committee work or something like that. And I wrote a response in the league newsletter about how committee work was such a blessing <laughs> for, <laughs> for our schools because it makes our schools a reality, right? All the work that we have to do. Yeah. I don't, I don't love committee work, but I do do a ton of committee work. Um, with the league. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pleasure to work with people that have a desire to see reform schools function and function well. And right. that's a privilege of my job that I get to work with those kind of people all the time. So yeah, so maybe you can describe. Um, well, let's let's go to the history of of the league and how it came to be. And then we'll get into, you know, what it all looks like. And what does it mean to be the coordinator of this organization? Yeah, so I come to the league as an outsider. I'm not Canadian reformed and I wasn't teaching in a league school before I, I became a person. So it was kind of like, what even, you know, when I sat down with Jason, it was like, what even is this thing that is the league? Um, so I give the history also of it as an outsider. So what I've heard from other people, um, I wasn't around to experience it firsthand, but it's, uh, so it was an organization. It is an organization that was started in 1965. Um, and basically at that time, there were two reform schools that had started and there were two other uh, reform schools in Ontario that are reform church communities, sorry, that were thinking about starting schools. And between those four, they said, you know, it'd be really great if we had an organization that would help schools to establish schools, right? So they were kind of in that same boat that Hope Reform Christian School was in when I was there, like all that work that you're doing say, man, it'd be nice to have people to help out with that. And so, yeah, they started the league. Um, and over time, then uh, the league's work developed in in that same vein of sort of figuring out what it means to run a reform school. And so they uh, they developed different committees. I think the first committee that they developed was the, the curriculum committee, which eventually be became um, known as CARE. So that's Curriculum Assistance to Reformed Education. Right. And one thing I'm going to say right now before I go a lot further is that if you get into the world of the league, you have to get into the world of a, like a ton of acronyms. So there's LCRSS and there's CARE and then there's like a whole bunch more. Um, <laughs> but then there's other committees that are started as well. Um, so like a professional development committee was one of the early ones as well. Uh, so like a lot of teachers are getting trained to be teaching in our schools at other institutions and and the board said, you know, our schools are distinct. So we need to we need to have teachers who think about what it means to be a professional, but in a reformed school context. So that's where the professional development committee came in. And that's also eventually where the the Covenant Canadian Reform Teachers College uh, started. So the league sort of had this vision of having these distinctly reformed schools, but they wanted teachers to be developed as professionals for teaching in those schools. And so they said, we should have a teacher's college. Uh, so yeah, the teacher's college, which has celebrated its 40th anniversary last year, is sort of a league product. Like it's one of the things that started around the league table. So fast forward a few more years, there's a bunch of 
other committees as well. I think there's like nine or 10 altogether, like compensation committee. There's the ASK committee, ASC, which is assisting the special child. So that's looking at helping students with special needs or with exceptionalities. Um, and yeah, so there's a bunch of these different committees that, that do this work. And then uh, in 2015, the league made the decision to hire a league coordinator. And that was the idea was to um, yeah, just help all the committees function, but also to help the work of the league to reach the schools well and to make sure that um, the schools were benefiting as well as they could from the work that was being done at the league. So that stuff that was being done at the league was effective for schools and that it was also being supported to, to be used effectively in schools. That's kind mm -hmm. of where that role came from. Gotcha. In, uh, and Jason did that for, for about three years from 2015 to 2018 when I took, took over. Oh, okay. Nice. So what is the current, structure of it look like you, you mentioned there's there's a bunch of committees but uh and then how do you relate to those those committees are those also are they volunteers are they employees or yeah it's a that's a good question so i'm the sole employee the league coordinator is the only employee of the league and then there's all the other committees are staffed by volunteers who are um found from the reform school communities that are members of the league so basically um, there's a, just like in a school board, you would have the board that sort of is responsible for the operation of the school and the, and the governance and direction of the school. The league has a board that is responsible for how the league operates. And then underneath that, there's a bunch of committees. And I sit on all of those committees, sort of, I guess, in some ways, like what a principal would do in a school society. And um, I make sure that they are following their mandate, that they're aware of what everybody is doing and that they are, um, yeah, like communicating well to the membership, that the membership is aware of what they're doing, all that kind of stuff. So there's um, a total of 10 committees and then there's a couple of subcommittees of those committees. And I communicate with all of the committees and then I also answer to the board and then collectively we answer to our member schools. And so there's uh, there's 18 member schools across Ontario. And each of those member schools has a rep that comes to our membership meeting. So the board appoints somebody to be the league rep to sit at our, our membership meetings. And, and then we as board and as committees and as league coordinator report to the membership and they, so that's kind of how it's structured. We all answer back to the members, uh, okay. which are our schools. Right, right, right. So what are the, um, well, maybe we'll get into like, where, where are you like located? Where are you most like doing your, most of your work? And then who are all these member schools? Like what are they elementary, high school? Does it matter? Yeah. So I am actually in an office right now at the teacher's college and that's kind of the, the league home is the teacher's college. It's the mailing address is the same. Uh, right. and I am a tenant. So we rent a room. <laughs> here for my office and uh yeah a lot of times we have jokes about the tenant landlord relationship that we have with the with the teachers college um <laughs> but yeah so the, the league is centered in hamilton um i actually live in branford with uh i should have said this when i was introducing myself but my wife and i live in branford and we have five kids that you know four of them are at hope still and one of them is at guido 
Okay. Uh, we attend the, the Living Water Church in Brantford. So that's kind of where our center base of operations is. And then for the league, um, it's all over Ontario. So we have, uh, like I said, we have 18 schools. One of those schools is the league. Um, Guido shares a parking lot with the Teachers College and they're a member school. So yeah, high schools can be members of the league as well. And then we have schools kind of with, I always think of it as a big triangle. So on one end of the triangle, you have Chatham. On the other end of the bottom of the triangle, you have Ottawa. And then going up, you have Owen Sound. And sort of within that, it's not really a triangle because Niagara is a little bit of a jut out on the bottom. But right. within that triangle, there's those 18 schools. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's, yeah, it's a big area. Does it, um, well, I guess we'll get into it probably a little bit more later, but does the league uh, look to get involved in reform schools uh, in BC, Alberta, um, Manitoba? Yeah. So um, we, we kind of have, we call them our sister schools. So like, that's not really an official, like we don't have ecclesiastical fellowship with, with, with like church relations, but we call them our sister schools. Yeah. So there's there's other Canadian Reform schools in uh, yeah, like you said, BC, Alberta, Manitoba, and we get together with them. We communicate with them. We share resources with them. So we have kind of a formal arrangement with. Um, at West, there's a group called RCDC. There's another acronym for you, Reform <laughs> Curriculum Development Committee. Um, that sounds like a rock group. RCDC. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're not the first person <laughs> to make that observation. <laughs> it's always kind of an interesting. Uh, question that people have especially if you're not like if you're not familiar with it at all yeah <laughs> what now? So, uh, anyway yeah they've developed a bunch of curriculum stuff that we posted on our website um and they also get to access our curriculum stuff that we post on our website and okay. so yeah we have we have good relationships with them and we are kind of like you said we'll, we'll probably get into a little bit later but we are kind of looking at ways to further that relationship and grow it um to maybe more formal unity uh, we'll have to see what that all looks like, but that's kind of something that we're exploring uh, with oh, yeah. them. Yeah, I'm interested. We'll, I'll, I'll ask you about that later because I'm interested to know what uh, what they do and like if there can be coordination and and you know some kind of synergy there. Um, yeah, let's get into like why reformed education. I mean, you got into it really early. Like um, right in school, you wanted to be a teacher. Um, why is reform education so important, I guess, to you, but then to our community? And, um, you know, we'll probably get into some stuff about, you know, how we may end up, you know, struggling against the government um, with this to maintain our reform education. But you know, why is it so important? And then, uh, yeah, then we'll get into um, some of the the hallmarks, I guess you, you, you mentioned in the chat we had. You're calling them the hallmarks of Christian education, so. Yeah, so um, I guess like I made my decision to become a teacher when I was in grade 10. Um, and I just kind of stuck with it. Like I had this idea that I was going to be a teacher and I really wanted to teach about reformed worldview. And I, I, you know, I grew in kind of understanding what that all meant. But um, I think uh, to me, the, the reason we have reformed education is pretty simple. I think God's, God's word commands us to have reformed education. So, um, you know, there's lots of verses in the Bible that talk about raising our children in the fear of the name and in the fear of the name of the Lord, and uh, you know, training them in the way they should go. And it's pretty clear that God wants His 
covenant children to be educated in a in a distinct way and i think that's what means as uh, as reformed people understanding god's word and and trying to live in obedience to it that's why we have reformed schools so um, yeah the bible says that those things are specifically given to parents but uh, we we understand reformed schools as sort of being parental schools right there um, some people are a little bit uncomfortable when we say they're parent-run schools but ultimately that's who we answer to as teachers as boards and uh, as school societies it's the parents um, and that's because parents have been entrusted with covenant children um, and uh, they've made promises because of because of the promises that God made to them and to their children they've made promises to educate them in the fear of his name and so well the school exists then to assist in that so we don't um early in in the pandemic when schools were being shut down i wrote an article talking about uh reformed education that there would always be reformed schools i don't know that we'll always necessarily have reformed schools as institutions i think you can think of situations where there's persecution or or that kind of thing but there will always be reformed education there are always going to be parents who are teaching their children in distinct ways from the culture around them because of God's word. Hmm. Yeah. So how does that differ from like our, how does our model differ from the local, say interdenominational school that is, is Christian education, but it's not um, like it's user pay or, you know, anyone, there's not a whole lot of qualifications to send your kid from a religious standpoint. Yeah. So I think um, we typically, and I think the simplest way to answer this question is to look at maybe our enrollment. I don't know if it's the most helpful to answer the question but the simplest way is to look at the enrollment um we typically are what we do we have what's called a covenant enrollment model whereas a lot of the community christian schools would have what might be described as a missional enrollment model so okay. um yeah we understand that our because of what we just said about why we have reformed education we say the school exists because of you know the promises that god made to children to children at baptism and the vows that parents made to raise their children in the fear of his name. So then that's the reason for our schools existing. That's um, that's why we have them. And so that's who the school is for, right? It's for those covenant kids. And that's why, so that's why we talk about covenant enrollment. It's for children of the church, children of believers. Um, whereas some of the other schools, uh, the interdenominational or um, community Christian schools is sometimes how we refer to them. They will have more of a a, uh, a missional enrollment policy, which means that anybody can be um, can be enrolled. And uh, um, yeah, it's also a difference in terms of membership, right? Who can be a voting member of the organization? So we we say you have to be a believing member in a a reformed church. Um, a URC church or, or a Canadian Reformed church to be a voting member in the organization um, where they might have a much more open membership policy to broader denominations. So yeah, this, this kind of does get into a little bit of the hallmarks because I think there's, there's more to it than that, like what makes us distinct. But uh, yeah, fundamentally, I think you can simplify it down to to enrollment in some sense and, and membership in the school community. Yeah. Yeah. So hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. What, why don't we touch on those hallmarks and, and explain a little bit why, um, you know, 
it, obviously our Christian education is important. Um, why is it important for the league specifically or, or for our schools to all um, understand that mission and understand why we have the, have reformed education, not just Christian education. And, and, and is it really an importance uh, for each one of our schools to all like land at the same place on these hallmarks, like similar to we would with a true church, like to understand what the school is um, in relationship to our, our community, our lives and our faith. Yeah. So that's, that's a really big question and I'll do my best <laughs> to answer that's it. That's what we try to do. Let's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that makes for a lot of real talk. So um, the uh, yeah, the hallmarks, first of all, so um, back in 2003, the league of Canadian Forum schools was thinking about um, the position of the league coordinator but at that time they were looking at a curriculum coordinator and they were thinking um, the league has kind of said it exists to support reform schools that are thoroughly reformed from, from, you know, from top to bottom and how they operate, it's going to be reformed. Um, and so part of what they did when they were thinking about this curriculum coordinator was they gave expression to what they thought set reform schools apart, what made them distinct. Um, so they identified four markers. They called them four markers of reformed education. And over the past couple of years, we've been looking at those and trying to um, make sure that our schools are aware of them, make sure that our schools can um, you know, communicate them well to parents and to, uh, to students, to everybody to understand what it is that makes a reformed school reformed. Um, so we kind of took those and looked at them and said, you know, Maybe the the language we want to use here is actually hallmarks, because a hallmark is something that uh, you know back in England in the eighteen hundreds, a bunch of goldsmiths got together and said, "How can we make sure that our gold, you know, that people recognize that it's true, authentic gold, and that it's been produced by real craftspeople, and it's not fool's gold or it's not imitation, right? Like hmm. all that kind of stuff." So they invented the idea of putting a hallmark on it, and it would. Hmm bear the mark of the guild hall of all these all these people. And so that spoke to this is authentic, like it's real, but it's also excellent. It it matches the standard. And so we like that that idea when we think about what sets reform schools apart. It's it's authentic reformed education, but it's also excellent. Um, and so those those hallmarks, uh, we we came up with a little bit of language to communicate them. And this is still sort of a work in progress, but they are uh, first in the first place covenantally founded. So that's what we were just talking about, that the school exists because of the covenant, because God makes promises to the children of believers and parents make vows. Um, then we, we also say that they're confessionally grounded. And that means that um, yeah, they're, they're rooted in confession. So uh, we talk a lot about the three forms of unity uh, that's sort of a key part of all of our schools as well. Um, but it's it's that idea that those three forms of unity are seeking to give expression to what God teaches in his word. And we also think about how God reveals himself in his work, so in creation and in providence. And confession is a response to covenant, right? So God makes promises to us, and we confess um, our belief, our faith, our trust in who God says he is. 
and that's that's what it means to be confessionally grounded it means to to in all of life seek to be obedient to god and to who he has revealed himself to be and that means that we you know we serve our neighbors and we live for his glory and honor hmm. in whatever career or calling or whatever uh, task we're called to to do um, the third hallmark or the third part of the hallmark is enmity surrounded and that refers to the idea that god has placed us in a context of um of sin in this world that there's uh, not only sin outside of us in the world around us, but also, uh, you know, within us that we have to fight against. So um, this one speaks to the idea of developing discernment um, that we want our students to understand the pervasive nature of sin, the power of sin, and the call that God has given them to reflect the light that he, so part of that enmity, right, is not just separating us from darkness, but putting us and revealing of putting us in light and revealing light to us hmm. and living in that light to to combat or to defeat the darkness so sometimes we think about this we we like to think about um christian education as a bit of a battlefield that uh you know there's a war of ideas going on there's a war of uh, of cultures and uh, our students need to be prepared to engage in that hmm. and then yeah. the final final one is um bound in unity uh, and that that shows the the idea that we have a unity of purpose between the the home the church and the school for our our students we work together in that community of home church and school as uh, as schools so that we can you know achieve the purpose of educating students so we 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 have we say then as reform schools we have a distinct responsibility to the church and to the home to parents in the education of children that reflects all those other markers right that they're they're all kind of um they interact with and build on each other so yeah we we um we see that reform schools are covenantally founded confessionally grounded enmity surrounded and bound in unity and we hope with that language it's kind of a good way to remember the hallmarks and um, kind of have them imprinted a little bit on your memory but also communicate them easily yeah well that's that's great like that it it touches to like well your work obviously at the league that we're we're bound in unity that we we assist each other um and also like confessionally grounded you know it speaks to why even you know these hallmarks like four points of reformed education um we should all you know be looking to ground ourselves in something confessional so like uh you know you mentioned that you know the confessions themselves but but something like this helps us to to yeah to frame christian education for everybody and then if we're all working off the same uh you know kind of mindset it really yeah it, it can really help to you know uh buster our or uh bolster our our kind of stand right in in the world so um, yeah, let's let's get into like a little bit of the league. So, how does uh, the league help our schools? What do they What do they do? Like you mentioned, historically, we're you're looking at stuff like curriculum, um, professional development, stuff like that. But what is uh, what does it look like on the ground? What are these committees working on? Um, and then, yeah, like what's the main focus of the work? And then, what are some of the you know things in recent years? Yeah. So. Um... 
right from the get-go, as we as I said earlier, curriculum was a priority. And I think that's still considered kind of like the big priority of the work of the league. So um, of all the committees, I, I attend meetings of all the committees, but on the curriculum committee, I'm like an actual member doing work for the committee and with the committee. So that, that continues to be our big priority. So we, um, yeah, we, we basically have committees that meet, uh, most of them meet every other month through the school year. So they meet about four or five times a year and they all have different mandates. So uh, like the compensation committee, their mandate is to evaluate and review salary and benefits for all the teachers in the league. Um, they don't make decisions about what people actually get paid, but they they make recommendations, right? So um, and one thing I was going to say in connection with those markers, and it connects to the rest of the work of the league as well, um, the league sort of can define these things, but each school makes of them what they what they will, right? Um, right. And they own them at their their own in their own way locally, and that's the same with the work of our committees, right? So we don't mandate implementation of any league resources. It's just there to help them to help boards make decisions. So the compensation committee report that gets developed, it's a recommendation from the committee about what they think is fair for teachers to get paid, and what kind of benefits. Uh, like health benefits and pension plan teachers should have right but whether each member school participates that in that it's up to them and how much right. they participate in it is that frustrating because it's it's uh it's hard as a board i guess locally in every school to pay attention to the league all the time so how like how how's that reception like are most schools who are members attentive to what's going on in the league or is it you, if you're working on policy, is it hard to to get everybody to realize the importance of it and, and implement that? Yes. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a <laughs> perfect question. Um, it is. It is. It, so sometimes it can be frustrating. Like, um, it can seem like you do a lot of work and it doesn't really get picked up. Right. But um, I read a series of articles a while ago that was talking about inefficiencies we need in, in Christian schools and Christian education. And I think that's um, like the tendency might be for us as league to say, well, then we're going to mandate it and everybody's going to implement it. And if you want to be a member, you're buying our package of everything. Right. And you're doing it and you're a league school, right? You, mm. but, but we respect parents and parents authority in education. So if the league supersedes that and becomes the, you know, the, the, the super board, let's say of all the schools, Right. And we sort of, I think we've overstepped our authority. Um, but that's that's something that we we're really working on then is like, how do we make sure that our members are aware of what we're doing and that they're able to take advantage of it? And that's part of my role. Um, so I meet with boards. Uh, I try to meet with each of the boards of our schools once a year. And then I just give them an update on what's been happening. But then the boards also have their member rep, and that's also involved with their role. Like their role is to go back to to be the conduit for information between the board and the and the school. And that system works um, reasonably well. It's not a perfect system. Like so, there's always transition in those people, right? So just yeah. as you get somebody who's sort of figured out what that what's all involved in that, sometimes they get put in a different role on the on their board, or their term is up, or whatever it might be. Um, so then we, yeah, we start from ground zero again, right? And yeah. um, 
but that's that's sort of the nature of the beast and we we um we're working on how we communicate with our members and how we make sure that this stuff is available to them hmm. but there's yeah. always going to be that tension i think of schools sort of doing their own thing running their own business and yeah. um and that's a that's a good thing for them to be for local parents to be involved in the running of their own school hmm. yeah it's a good Just, way to look at it Having served on having served on a board, I know what those packages look like every month from the league. How much information could be yeah. in there, and like there is value in it. It's it's hard for board volunteer board members to piece through thousands of documents a month. Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, so that's that's part important. of what we're doing. Is like we used to put out a package that was about one hundred and ten to one hundred and fifty pages for every membership meeting. Right, and we've kind of really tried to pare that down to more like 30 to 40 pages and i think the last one that we sent out was 20 to 25 right um so we've focused on yeah like communicating less but trying to communicate more effectively um and there's there's a little bit of like history to that too like um when you have to pay somebody to be the lead coordinator then schools start to also take a hard look at is this actually adding value to us and right. so the response from the league at that time was we'll show you we're adding value. We'll send you 150 pages of stuff that we're busy with every month and you can see how busy we've been. Right. So right. that's been kind of a, hmm. we've stepped back a little bit from that. And I think there's a lot of a confidence, a lot of support for the league from our schools. Yeah. So that's, that's a good uh, mutual learning from each other. Yeah. Interesting. That's like uh it's like having a business consultant. You only really get out of them what you want to get out of them. So you could pay someone every month, but you, if you don't, you know, want to implement the value of it. So yeah, let's, let's get into some of the specifics. Like what are, what are these things that are crossing these board tables that the league's working on every month that can be helpful? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> like curriculum, we are working on uh, conceptual frameworks. So that's uh, like, it's a kind of like a position statement on, how a subject should be taught from a reform perspective. So okay. I, I was helping with language arts one and we look at, you know, why do we teach language arts in a reform school? How do we teach reform language arts in a reform school? What, what's the content of language arts teaching in a reform school? And we put together a big document and we publish it for the schools to, to use. And then we also support that with uh, professional development days and, and engagement with the local school communities to help them take that document so there's that's one kind of feature of curriculum of the of the work through the curriculum committee um we've also been uh, busy working on uh, policy development so that's a little bit different we don't have a policy development committee but we have um the idea is to have uh, have the schools share policies with each other so we ask we, we generated a list of all the policies the school should have um and then what we did is we asked schools to volunteer to develop a policy that they could share with everybody. And then right. we'll post it on the website and we'll, uh, we'll help them make sure it's, you know, generic enough that it can be adapted to use in different contexts. But the idea then is to um, provide them, provide schools with policy templates for all different kinds of policies. Right. Uh, so that's, that's a ongoing project. What are some of those, what are some examples of that? Like those policies that, better like maybe in recent years that have been necessary yeah so um we had a so i was going to get to this a little bit um 
further on in the conversation, but we have uh, we what we have uh, annually is a league learning day. So it's an okay. event where we invite boards and principals to come together and learn about a topic. And usually what happens is from the day, the league will take away some work that can be done and also make recommendations for schools. So the, the one that we hosted in October was on um, on uh, in conversion therapy bans and reform schools. And right. that like exposes a big area where we might need to do some policy work. So that's a good example of something in the last couple of years that's come up and schools need to be thinking about it policy-wise, but the league sees its position as helping schools cooperate with each other, um, not necessarily just doing the work for schools, right? So the volunteers that we have are people from school communities. And uh, and the idea is that we have a network of schools that aid each other. Right. And so, yeah, um, when it comes to this area of... of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, there's there's going to be some work that we might want to do collectively. And, and there's been some talk about hiring somebody to, to develop. But this is a good example of, you know, this is how the league functions. We identify, or the schools sort of identify issues and we say, okay, well, how can we help each other here? Right. And then we we make a plan. And, mm. <laughs> and part of my work is sort of like project management, right? Where I'm, here's a project we're working on to help schools and I sort of help see it through to right. the various people that are involved with it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good example because, I mean, something like that, it's pretty hard for a, a you know, a committee of volunteers from a, a board to put together a comprehensive, you know, uh, policy on gen or whatever conversion therapy that would stand up to legal scrutiny. So <laughs> bringing in, say, some like a, a lawyer, maybe ARPA or something like, like that's kind of who's going to do that work if not the league, I guess. Yeah, right. and... A lot of times, so w what happens with schools quite often is your policy development can be reactionary. So you you mm -hmm. encounter an issue and it's like, oh, uh, what's the policy on that? And then you look through your manual or your handbook or whatever, and maybe you don't have a policy. So you're like, okay, well, let's write a policy. This is not an area where you want to do that. <laughs> because <laughs> if you're perceived by the government to be targeting a specific scenario yep. in a policy, that, that is uh, bad news. Um, so yeah, it's kind of uh, also then trying to help schools to be um, proactive rather than reactive. And so, yeah, the league. I think some sometimes people say the league helps the boards to lift their heads up and and you know get out of the local day to day operation, but think about what's coming right down the road and what they need to be aware of for the operation of their school going mm -hmm. forward. Sorry, I didn't know that. Uh, so if you're if you're it's it's. You're making a reactionary policy as a board that would be uh, frowned upon by a by a, a government official looking at your your policies and stuff. Yeah, because if like it, it becomes very discriminatory, then right? Like hmm. you're not you. This is not how you always operate. You're developing a policy because you have a problem that you want to deal with, and you're like, oh no, we have to respond to this problem. Right. And then it's like pretty clear, or at least it, it would look like to the government and to, you know, legal eyes that this is a prejudicial or a discriminatory kind of action. Oh, I see. It's not, right. a, not something that you as a school or as a board have said, you know, these, this is who we are. This is how we operate for all time. It's you no, know, there's a problem that we're responding to and oh, developing a policy so we can enforce that response. Do they have that, do they have that same view if it's a law like that can, 
conversion therapy bill that came in and you're you're reacting to that or just hope it doesn't come up so um yeah they probably would i think th there's potential anyway like but but schools are always responding to new legal developments right like right. They, that's part of so this whole day that was put on um, for League Learning Day about conversion therapy bans was put on by the Government Contact Committee of the League. And that's part yeah. of their role is to look at what the government is saying and give, give schools a heads up. So uh, an example is the Ontario Human Rights Commission published a document talking about what accessibility means in our schools. So if you have students with disabilities, how are you accommodating them in lesson planning, in um, entrance and access to the buildings of the school, all that kind of stuff. So right. the, the government contact committee looks at that and says, schools, you need to be aware of this. And so the schools then will develop a policy in response to that, that legal development. Right. Um, so that, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And part of what has been recommended is from, from this conversion therapy band-aid is um, making explicit things that we've sort of been having as implicit practices. And, Right. You know, we have it in our contracts, for example, that people have to be members in good standing of a, of a reformed church, and they have to maintain that membership in good standing to be a teacher in our schools. So that's that's one way that we've kind of already been practicing a standard of a, a code of conduct for teachers. And we do have um, other parts of a code of conduct in our contracts. So right. now it's, it's just making sure that that stuff is um, thorough in the area of sexual orientation and gender identity. Right. Um, okay. Right. Reflects you know, God's word and so even, right. So even adding language to existing policy to to yeah. Right. I guess that's kind of what the government's doing anyways, just the opposite direction. So so yeah. okay. So I cut you off earlier. What's uh, what are some other things you guys are working on? Um yeah, so you cut me off, but we did get into a couple of them because I was going to talk about the League Learning Days and I was going to talk about government contact committee. Um, yeah, so like, uh, the, uh, ask committee is a, is a good example of, uh, another one that's busy for schools. So what they, they do is for special needs students, um, they have uh, a parent support group. So members of school communities that have students with special needs can join a support group. They meet once per semester at somebody's home and they just kind of share experiences, joys and concerns, that kind of thing about right. being a parent of a child with special needs. Uh, so it's about creating a community of support for them. And then right. we also do um, a professional development day for educators assistants. So all those, the teachers, uh, or sorry, all the educators assistants who work with these students with special needs can come and have some professional development for them. Oh, cool. Um, Excuse me. Um, there's also a professional development committee, which is busy with uh, providing direction to the schools on on professional development, like what's a what does performance review look like for teachers, but also um, what might you know how can schools support professional growth and the development of professional growth plans, and they also supervise the the annual teachers convention. So um, every year the teachers all get together for a day or a couple of days of professional development. And that falls under the work of the, of the professional development committee. So yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a number of things. Like if I go uh, to the league um, 
league meetings, then we give a report. There's all these committees that are that are busy. I think one more that is worth mentioning is the school review committee. So we have a service that we offer to our member schools where we get an experienced principal and an experienced board member uh, or, a, or a couple either principals or board members to make a review team. And then we have a process of surveying parents, teachers, students, uh, boards, edcoms, all that kind of stuff to, to get a sense of where the school's at and then provide them with feedback. And so all of the member schools are on a schedule and they get reviewed you know, every five or six years with a view to improving their effectiveness in offering reformed education, kind of broad from a broad perspective, right? So it's the idea is there's um, the vision plus eight. So it looks at the vision of the school and how that's worked out in eight different areas of the school's operation. Hmm. So and our schools have really appreciated that that service. And my work is to sort of coordinate it all in the back end. So I find the review teams, put them together. I, we, I help the school schedule a review. I, um, I, sent, I create the surveys and send them to the school to distribute to their community and then right. collect the results and analyze them and all that kind of stuff. So that's a little bit of a picture also of how, how the league kind of functions in that sense. Hmm. Yeah, it was part of uh, one of those reviews that, when I was on the board at Guido and that was, uh, yeah, it was helpful. Like, yeah, it was about five or six year, years between the other one, but we looked at the old review and then how we were doing. And then when the report came out from that review, it's very helpful to hear uh, from an independent, so, you know, it's still within our community, but kind of an independent uh, source. You know, how are we doing? Like the interview or uh, or survey, um, fan, like the members, the like all the all the stakeholders, I guess, right? The teachers, yeah. the staff, the administration. So to hear really honest feedback that you might not otherwise hear, and then some helpful uh, recommendations for internal policy work that you know, no one really can offer a board because it's a real deep dive into the operations of not just like the administration who the, the board overlooks, but like the actual committees that the board has working. Like uh, I was on promotion, for example, in, in Guido, and there were some good recommendations and there was a whole visioning exercise that came out of it to understand our vision and stuff like that at Guido. That was a yeah, really helpful um, yeah, exercise for sure. So that's uh yeah, that's definitely some value that you bring. So you do that for all your member um, schools, I guess. Yeah. So and again, it's up to the school if they want to take advantage of that, but right. we put them on a schedule and we offer to do it. And yeah, like sometimes we have to move the schedule around or whatever because of different circumstances, but generally everybody gets reviewed on a regular basis. And yeah, we, we did start offering as a follow-up to that, that, what we did at Gita, right? That that visioning exercise and then strategic planning about how to put a plan in place to uh, deal with some of the things that might come up in a review. But I think it's kind of like the best of both worlds where you have somebody from outside the community who gets to be, you know, everybody can feel free to talk to them because they're not mm. stakeholders of the community. Yeah. But they also understand the community because there are people that are involved in their own local school society, right? So mm -hmm. they they don't come as complete outsiders. They come as sort of knowledgeable and experienced outsiders that can, you know, offer some wisdom and some guidance and help. I think one of the best metaphors was like hold up a mirror to the school society. Yeah. And, uh, help them see where they're at. 
Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's really helpful. Like it wasn't just a, a standard checklist or, or a rubric. It was, it was really personalized for the, for the uh, school itself. So yeah. actually maybe we, let's touch on that visioning exercise. Like that, that's pretty interesting for people. What, maybe you can just describe what that is and how that helps. Cause I mean, we hadn't planned on chatting about that, but that's, that was a fun thing to do too. Yeah. So it's actually like in terms of some of the favorite parts of my work, I think I enjoy all of my work pretty much, but this is probably one of the, the highlights of my work is we go to it. So after a school review, typically we'll go to a school community um, and we invite the membership to come out and we basically say, you know, what are your hopes and dreams for this school? And it, and it can be anything kind of, we, we give a little bit of direction about um, these are supposed to be strategic goals, like things that you want to achieve over the next one to two to three years. And then uh, we try to have everybody in the school society attend the meeting as many as possible. And then they sit around tables and they just talk about, you know, my hope is, you know, we, we kind of joked at Guido, there was a couple of people that, I don't know if they were being serious or not, but they were like, we should have a pool. Uh, a big university or or, or, or Olympic size pool. And um, so, yeah, it's just kind of like, yeah, okay, put it out there. You have this dream of having a pool at Guido or there was people that talked about having a, an improved trades program or, um, you know, an apologetics focus in, uh, in the high school, right? So anything that a parent or a stakeholder in the, in the community says, this is what we want for our school. And then we go through a process of, um, basically uh, prioritizing. So after everybody's done, then we ask people around their tables to pick what they think are the two most important. And then we write them down on chart paper and we put them on the wall. So everybody can see these are, these are the things that everybody thought was important. And then after that, we give people stickers and they, they go around and pick. Uh, they have maybe, let's say there were 12 or 15 or 20 initiatives and you get five or six stickers and you have to say, I'm going to put my sticker on on this and sometimes we do another round but basically the idea is to help uh get a sense of unity around right everybody gets buy-in because everybody has a, a chance to say this is what we think is important mm -hmm. and it gives a strong direction to the board about where where the priorities are at and it gives yep. the, the opportunity to hear from the membership and then um yeah and then we kind of follow that up with strategic planning and that all that all that work that we've done together as a membership and and with the uh, with the league representatives who help with this process, then becomes information that we use to develop plans and initiatives for um, improving the school over the next couple of years. Yeah, so. yeah, it was it was really cool to see in that exercise. I actually got the privilege of uh, collecting all that data from the the one we did at Geo, but it was um, it was interesting to see how unified the community actually got around things like things like the pool. We're like, all right. They got one sticker because it was just the one guy. Yeah. Um, but things like that trades program, for instance, that was really like people really felt that was something that they needed in that local, you know, area. And so that garnered a lot of support. And that's really, it really helped the direction for the board to really understand the membership. So that's yeah. hey, another another thing the league's doing. That's just, that's just great. Um, yeah. Definitely encourage other people to take advantage of that or even to, to do that themselves with their membership. Um, yeah, we've done it. We've done it basically uh, after almost every school review, and it's it's been a huge like for for me. It's it's so neat to see right that schools uh, you love to see people engaging with their school community and thinking about how to make it better, 
-hmm. And then, yeah, the kind of conversations that you have in those meetings and the the uh, the excitement that you really build and generate for the school is kind of amazing to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, and it helps to have uh, some people who are not stakeholders run that because it's it's just like it really gets you to think about oh okay it's this isn't this isn't being directed by somebody this is just what do we you know it was actually a vision that everyone had to kind of look into themselves and, and think about what that school was going to be like so yeah was, we don't have yeah. an agenda when we come in right like yeah. where the board or some parent might be perceived to really want you know let's say their initiative to win yeah as leaders yeah. just come in and say we're just helping you talk mm. about this and hear from your members and get yeah. some direction so yeah you're perfectly willing to have the pool be the best idea <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> yeah oh no, yeah we are, that's yeah that's how we go into it right with that mindset yeah. of if yeah. this is what matters to people then no that's good stuff uh anything else you wanted to mention just specifics of your work or otherwise i want to get into the government <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no i think that's good but there's probably some other stuff that we can that might come up as we talk about the government but it's good to switch gears now and, and talk about that i think yeah okay good stuff yeah so part of um what i always thought the the league did before i was even part of any any type of christian education board or anything like that um was you know mostly just worrying about what the government was saying and then how are we going to keep our schools alive <laughs> Um, you hear a lot about the, even the teacher's college with accreditation and, you know, I'm sure we'll get into a bit of this stuff, but um, maybe you've had experience through the country, but we'll, we'll touch on that later. But how does, um, how does our relationship to the government and the government's understanding of our kids and our understanding of our kids, like being covenantally founded uh, to use those hallmark language, uh, I'm sure that's not what the government thinks. So how does that view, how do, how does that like clash with the government? And then where are we in that relationship? I guess specifically in Ontario for now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's good to, to think about Ontario first. So um, it's kind of interesting in Ontario uh, in one sense. Uh, I think that we sometimes have the impression that Ontario is quite an oppressive system. So in other if we compare with other provinces, we don't get any financial support for running our schools. Um, but we probably have the most freedom uh, to operate our schools. And like you, you phrased it as a war. Um, I think in COVID, we sort of had a mentality that maybe the government was out to get our schools or or whatever. They weren't, they weren't in favor of, of independent schools. And definitely in the history of the relationship between the government and independent schools in Ontario, there has been some some significant tension. I think like on principle, um, the perspective of the government is that that kids should be in public schools. And um, yeah, there's so that I think that's partly where that that hostility sense comes from. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, the government loves our independent schools and wants to support them, but in Ontario, they pretty much say anybody can run an independent school. You don't have to follow the government curriculum. Um, and that's about it. You're not going to get any money from us, but you're free to operate kind of how you want. The only the only requirements you have are to submit a notice of intent to operate. And that's an annual thing. You you pass that to the government every year. And then you uh, you tell them how many students you have. Um, they have some language in there about like you have to have a reasonably safe building. 
And I've heard different stories that sometimes they come out and actually check whether you have a safe building and other times it's nope, we trust that you have a safe building. Maybe they check it out on Google Earth or something like that. And right. <laughs> like, no, it looks good. But uh, pretty much, you know, there's a there's a policies and procedures manual that exists. Um, but that te- that says too, especially for our elementary schools, they don't have to follow the government curriculum. They don't have to comply with, you know, certain worldview um, things at all. So we have a fair bit of freedom. Um, that's a little different at the high school level because our high schools have made the choice to offer the Ontario Secondary School Diploma, so the OSSD. And that comes with the requirement to have an inspection. And then the government comes in and looks at, okay, so you say you're teaching Ontario Secondary School Diploma courses. What does that mean? Can we see your lesson plans? Can we see your unit plans? Can we see your course outlines? Can we see uh, you know, how you're marking your students and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I think a lot of the, the tension comes in when you have inspectors that come to our schools and they have their own ideas about, you know, maybe they're opposed to independent schools altogether, or maybe they're hostile to the Christian faith or whatever it might be. And then they come in and they have a fair bit of power um, when it comes to that inspection. So they can be quite uh, aggressive um, I've heard of, I never had this experience when I was teaching in high school. We had pretty good experience with our, with our, uh, our government inspectors, but they could, you know, ask you to eliminate any reference to Christian perspective in your course, because the hmm. government doesn't have any Christian perspective. And if you say you're teaching a government course, you can't do that. If you want to, you can, but it has, then you have to add hours to the course. So right. it's a, they hmm. say a credit is 110 hours. Feel free to talk about Christian perspective, but then your course has to be 115 hours or 120 or whatever right. it might be, right? So yep. that's going to happen outside of this time. Hmm. Yeah. So we've we 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 definitely in terms of you know we're talking about that difference of perspective between the covenant children and the child of the state. We do see a difference in terms of how the government views the child. Um. So when when they come to inspect. There's a government document that, that's being used to guide assessment in the province, and they come and see, are you following this guide that we've put out for assessment and evaluation? It's called Growing Success. And some of the stuff in there is like that students should be leaders of their own learning. They should be, you know, <laughs> writing what they, they want to learn. They should be evaluating their own learning. Um, they should be, you know, co <laughs> co-constructing expectations with the teacher hmm. that the teacher and student work together so you can see that embedded in that is a view of the child that the child is essentially good and wants to learn and all that kind of stuff i and wish i had that like, hmm, <laughs> that might not work so well i would have co-constructed myself into better marks <laughs> yeah yeah i mean well you got to co-evaluate as well so <laughs> you can always try to retake high school and see what your teachers <laughs> say the second time <laughs> But yeah, so you see that that tension in Ontario. Right. Um, I think the bigger issue for us is um, almost that the government, like the government views us as sort of illegitimate. And I think that's where COVID sort of exposed that, right? Um, during COVID, we were basically offered a choice. We could operate as a business with instructional space and then follow the rules for that. Or we could operate as schools, and that meant we had to operate same as the public schools. Hmm. And of course, 
you know, operating as a business with instructional space meant that you had to cap um, attendance in the building at, you know, 15 or 20 or whatever the limits were at the time. And um, yeah, there was just, it just wasn't feasible to operate schools. So then we were expected to operate the same as the government schools. And we were expected to do that without any funding or support. And it's kind of that exposed for the government in some sense, it views the, the, the private schools as businesses. And in some sense, it views them as schools and we're sort of caught in between. Hmm. Um, we're not we're not really legitimate in some sense as schools in the eyes of the government. And that's hmm. something that I think we'd like to to do something about a little bit is to to create a space for ourselves that recognizes independent schools as independent schools well hopefully maintaining as much of the freedom to operate as we have had right do you see that the government do you see the government pushing that agenda at all or is it kind of something that they almost accidentally did they accidentally did a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah. i i think it was um I don't think it was intentional. Um, our so one of the things like we've noticed a lot of um, a lot of difference between let's say the previous government with Kathleen Wynne and the current government with Doug Ford. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> we have like somebody counted the amount of emails we got from the government about during COVID, and it was like two hundred and fifty over the two year period or something like that. So we we're getting a lot of communication. The government was trying to, you know, make sure we were aware of what they were hoping for us in terms of how we operated. Right. And previous to that, you know, some years it was like you maybe got five emails over two wow. years or something like that. Like so very little communication. And, wow. and in one sense, that's nice. You've got a lot of freedom. But in another sense, it's kind of like you don't matter, you don't really exist, we don't care about you. Um, you're an afterthought. And right. Yeah. You just wonder what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And then, and then they would come out with like, so uh, they really upped during Kathleen Wynn's time, they really upped the fees for inspections. So originally we were paying uh, like between a thousand and two thousand dollars. They upped it to four thousand and they were upping it to, to 6,500. And like they just kept raising that fee. And it's, it's ridiculous because independent schools are saving taxpayer money mm -hmm. by not sending our kids to public schools and, and still paying taxes <laughs> but they were like if you want to be inspected you're going to pay for the inspector to come mm. and so yeah um actually under under uh over the last couple of years i don't think any of our schools have been invoiced for an inspection we didn't hear anything about whether that was a decision but wow. our schools have all said we haven't received an invoice for an inspection so hmm. And you know, I called the I I call on occasion. I'll make a phone call to the private schools unit, and uh, I talk to a very lovely lady there, and she always is very responsive to me. And you know, a number of times during the pandemic, she said, "We trust that you know your schools best, and that you have your schools' best interests in mind, and that you'll do what's best for your community." So you know, we're trying to get interpretation on what things mean, and they're like, "You do what's best for you." <laughs> Well, that's good now, to hear. Yeah, it was, yeah, it like we externally, we had to do things that we didn't want to do. 
but um, yeah, in general, I think we have a, a positive relationship um, that we can be thankful for in a lot of different ways. And actually, um, you know, in other provinces, they have associations of independent schools. So there's been some work going on toward that in in uh, the independent schools of Ontario. And it's kind of funny because um, I spoke to people from other provinces and they talked about regular liaisons with their minister of education. Hmm. And that's something that we're, we're sort of fighting for right now. It's like, can we actually meet with the minister of education and talk right. about our schools? So, right. Do, does, does the Ontario government view Christian education, like private Christian schools, uh, reform schools as uh, in the same you know, vain as just like Ivy League private schools or or do they, you know, are they trying to separate the two? Yeah, I think for all intents and purposes, when when the government people, bureaucrats and elected representatives, when they hear private school, they think like Oak, um, what is that place called? I'm trying to remember in Oakville, there's this really fancy academy on the lake. They, oh. That's what they have in mind. Right. Hillfield um, Strath Allen. That's the yeah that kind of thing, right? That's Those the... schools where it's like yeah. people are paying, you know, twenty to twenty five thousand dollars per student for their children to attend, and yeah, um, somehow they own a hundred acres in the middle of the city, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, okay. So that's, I guess that's a good thing and a bad. Like it, it, you're kind of you kind of we kind of fly under the radar then a little bit, but there's not like intentional targeting. Um, but I, yeah, you know, now, now at least. <laughs> Yeah, so like the I think the the thing is we're vulnerable. Um, so if you had a if you had a situation where we go back to somebody like Kathleen Wynn, there would be a lot of potential for them to do a lot of um, interference in our schools with uh, without a whole lot of legislative action because it all right. falls down to that pro- provincial or uh, private schools unit in the government. Mm-hmm. They can sort of if you know if they decide. Private schools need to do X, Y, or Z. In a sense, they can they can do that, and hmm. um, yeah. So that's a little bit what we'd like to we'd like to not be in that kind of a vulnerable position. We'd like to have some status with the government where it's not down to the capriciousness of the elected official or the the bureaucrats that are making decisions. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. Does it help? Well, we can touch on other other areas in the country too, because I think you're familiar with other, uh, you know, BC a little bit in Alberta, especially um, what our system look like. Does it help in Ontario that it's not funded by the government? Does that give you a little bit more flexibility or like what you said, it's just kind of up to them anyways. Yeah. So I think the big fear, um, I think in some ways we've, we have conversations about whether we want funding or not. I think the big fear is with funding is that strings will come attached. Hmm. And um, yeah. So if you look at Alberta, um, they are, they have funding. They have the option to not take funding, but the with the acceptance of funding, there are certain strings attached. And um, I think it, in some ways it's kind of funny, just because I think the Alberta schools feel like they have a lot more freedom to operate. But um, you know, in in Alberta they have a lot more control over curriculum. Um, so in grade three, six, nine, and twelve you're writing provincial tests and that's sort of legitimizing your school, right? To how your students are performing in those provincial tests. Mm-hmm. And that means that teachers are teaching to those tests and teaching the government curriculum so that students can do well on those tests. 
and that means the government is having a lot of say on what gets taught in in a private school in on in alberta so um you know subjects there are subjects that fall outside of that like religious studies or bible would be an area where you don't have to write a pat a provincial achievement test but um yeah like english uh social studies biology chemistry in all those areas you're writing a either a provincial achievement test or a government diploma exam and and i'm not sure if it's exactly the same as it was when i was there but those diploma exams are worth 50 percent of your mark in the course so you know you're developing a christian perspective on on a subject area and teaching from it but the government doesn't care about that they're going to test what the government wants to test mm. and they're going to determine your proficiency in that so you have to so, test on you know the government's biology and not real biology yes yeah and the government's language arts and, and whatever else right hmm. Yeah. So there's not going to be questions about Christian perspective on the government diploma exam <laughs> right. for language arts, but that's really kind of key to what you're teaching as a, as a Christian school. Right. So you're not necessarily uh, answering to an inspector about the curriculum, but you're just testing the knowledge or as in Ontario, it's the other way around. You don't really test the knowledge as long as you're teaching the curriculum that, yeah. and it, I, I guess there's a lot more, work to be done by the government to monitor the curriculum then there would be just to like say this is the standardized knowledge you need to know at the end then yeah i guess that's a lot more influence yeah yeah well yeah yeah like there all the results of your pats um the government looks at them and they will say you know let's say you evaluated students and on the PAT, they all got an average of 65, but you're teaching them and they got an average of 90. The government is going to raise that as a red flag and say, obviously, you're not evaluating them according to our standards. You're not teaching them the the, the proper curriculum. Right. And you need to do something about that. You need to address that. And so all, this, all the schools in Alberta that get funding have to publish that kind of stuff. It's called the Annual Education Results Report, AERR, and they, they have to publish that on their website make it publicly available to right. anybody who wants to see where the school is at. Now, our schools do well, um, generally speaking, a lot. They do well compared with the, most of the schools in the province. And uh, the, part of that is also they do a, a survey of parents and students and teachers about working and being at the school. And, uh, you know, for example, like feeling safe at the school. And our schools really tend to score off the charts on that kind of thing, school satisfaction. Right, right. So they, like, generally, our schools are happy to publish the annual education results because they're quite positive for the school right. compared to other schools. But I think there's a sort of silent influence or whatever, a hidden influence of the government over your over your curriculum and your direction hmm. as a school that you might not think about. Whereas in Ontario, yeah, you've got a lot of freedom. And then the government comes in and says, what are you actually teaching? And then you have to think about that a lot more. Yeah, I think there's a, a <laughs> people are always thinking about it in our community, whether or not the funding is worth it and, and stuff like that too. So now that I'm in Alberta, it's pretty interesting to hear the differences and stuff. Um, yeah. Is that an issue? Are, are we, well, should we wave the red flag about this stuff? Like, is this like Ontario seems to be kind of, the gist I got was more like it's kind of status quo until all of a sudden it's not. Um, and I don't know what it is, is like here in Alberta exactly, or even BC, but is it, um, is that, 
something we should be concerned about in the immediate, you know, moment or, uh, or should we kind of just be kicking that can down the road? Yeah. So, um, so there's always going to be tension between the school and the, like the reform school and the government, um, because of the culture around us, I think, um, Alberta schools felt like they were pretty, right. They pretty safe, had a strong relationship with the government. And then in 2015, I think it was when Rachel Notley was elected and tried to make mandate gay straight alliances in all the schools. Um, they found out pretty quickly that everybody's vulnerable. And I think, so Ontario is vulnerable. BC is vulnerable. If the government decides to do something like that, um, they have the legislative power to do it. That's, um, it's, that's true in Ontario, it's true in Alberta, true in BC. Mm. I think uh, part of what the group of independent schools in Ontario is trying to do is to make it a little bit harder. And ultimately, you know, in Alberta too, there was a desire, there was a response from the public, there was a response from the schools, and it didn't end up happening, right? So there are limits to that power. Right. And I think that's where Alberta is... Um, maybe a little bit better situated even now. So Jason Kenny, when he, he came in, had this, he had a strengthening of parents' rights and education bill. That was one of his priorities. Um, Doug Ford talked about doing the same, right? Creating a bill of rights for parents in education. And right. we really advocated to the government that he would do that, that he would stress the rights of parents to decide. Um, ultimately, they decided not to go that route. Um but that's kind of, yeah, like uh, it's a human rights thing, actually. Like the uh, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights says as one of its rights that parents have a right to determine how their children are educated. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we support that. We support the idea that parents should be free. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, um, there's lots of conversations all over the place in the West about about this issue because um the whole sexual orientation and gender identity thing is it's an ideology and they want to further that ideology and promote that ideology and they recognize that christian communities especially conservative christian communities are resistant Mm -hmm. and so the question is how militant will they be about that resistance and how much support will there they have from the public Um, right you know, lesson of history, it's interesting, like in residential schools, parents uh, of First Nations children had their kids taken away from them. And um, the idea was to assimilate them into the ideology of Western society so that they could fit. And that has had devastating impacts on the on the Indigenous community. And it's recognized as a terrible thing, but it'll be interesting to see whether that lesson of history is applied <laughs> to, the, to the sexual orientation and gender identity movement, right? And how much uh, how much weight well, that will carry. It's fine to do that as long as your ideology is good, right? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. that seems to be the accepted uh, line of thinking, though. So what if yeah. what if someone like what if Justin Trudeau doesn't win in in uh, the federal politics, but then becomes the premier of Ontario, uh, which would be a horrible uh, situation? What? what options if this goes uh goes sideways 
what options do our schools have? Like we don't, especially in Ontario, don't have funding. Um, say they kick the funding. I know there's been discussions in BC about it. Um, and, and in Alberta, even it's kind of an alive thing, you know, with a Rachel Notley scare. Um, like if we were to all kick the funding, um, what other options do we have? Do we have to listen to the government curriculum? Can we just start a big homeschool? Like, is that, is that a different category or, or are there, are there outs? Like, yeah, so it's, it's, it's really tricky to answer this question without the specific context of, you know, right. how would they go about legislating this? What would right, be the, right. what would that be the action? So right now, um, I would think that uh, mostly our schools, so in Ontario, if, if it was just, um, you know, you have to teach this as part of the Ontario curriculum, you have to teach sexual orientation and gender identity in alignment with what is the current um, ideology. Um, our schools have the option of just saying, uh, thank you very much, we're just not going to offer the Ontario Secondary School Diploma. Mm. We're free to still operate schools. Um, acceptance to universities and, and colleges might be impacted by that and, and, and various of those kinds of programs. Uh, so we might be at a disadvantage in that sense, but that's right now that that's our prerogative. Um, right. Legally, let's say they went further than that and said you had to have on your notice of intent to operate, you had to um, include um, equity policy or something like that, right? Like right. employment equity or um, enrollment equity or some kind of thing like that. Um, then that would be a different a different uh, scenario because I think that law carries with it a penalty. So if you're found to be operating a school and there's more than f five or six kids that are gathered and you're teaching them from, um, you know, beyond certain hours of the day, then you are in trouble. Um, but one of the interesting things about COVID is that there's been a whole growth of these kind of homeschool cooperatives. So there's lots of people that are frustrated with the public school. And they said, let's get together and we can, you know, maximize our strengths. We don't want to start a school. We don't want to institute, but we're, we've got a homeschool cooperative. And so that there's also a push to legitimize that from a legislative perspective. And then that becomes something that, that might be an option for us as reform people. Right. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's it's hard to know where they where they come at you. <laughs> yeah, and and, ha and how they come at you, right? So one one inspection that I had that kind of made me a little bit leery was um, in the government of Ontario curriculum documents. There's these what they call the program planning considerations, and it's like as you teach this course, here are the things that you need to keep in mind, and one of them is equity, um, and uh, and I forget what, but it's like sexual orientation and. And gender identity and diversity. Right. Uh, I think it was equity and diversity. That was kind mm -hmm. of the the, the heading. Yeah. And so they said you need to have something written about equity and diversity, um, and how you consider that as you teach history or whatever it might be. Sure. So we quickly pulled something together. We used this. We used some ARPA resources and and just you know some reform theology and said you know we respect the the diversity of each student as made in the image of God and created by him for his glory and, you know, worth, they, ha they all have worth as individuals. Um, and so I thought, you know, if the government is starting to, if the inspector is going to come in and start to look at this documentation and, 
and measure it with what the government is saying, that's where we might have an issue. They might ask us to do things that we're not going to be comfortable doing. But they looked at what we wrote and the actual concern that was raised was you didn't customize this enough to your school and you didn't customize this enough to uh, your courses. So you should have something different for history than you do for art and for French and for whatever. Right. So it wasn't any, like, there was no ideological concerns with us not referencing uh, respecting sexual orientation and gender identity in the inspector's report. It was more, make right. sure this reflects your school, make sure that it reflects specifically this course. And right. So yeah, we can live with that. But that's yeah. just the, the kind of thing where you see alarm bells start to go off and, and you think what could what could become if they're starting to look at our documentation here. Yeah. I guess yeah, it's just another uh, reason to collaborate. So yeah. um yeah, I see let's uh, I want to touch on the the work the, of the RCDC because that's just fun. Um and then how how we can do this coordination even across the country and stuff because you see stuff in BC uh, their provincial government's been, you know, quite aggressive on all sorts of things, a bit of a disaster. Um, and then how can we learn in, in Alberta, uh, uh, Manitoba, Ontario from situations across the country? And, and then, yeah, what are even just like what you just spoke to, like learning the strategies that they might use to implement, you know, oh yeah, you need a policy on this and this, and then here's some good ways to get around that kind of, you know, attack. So, um, I introduced you from the article from Mark Penninga, um, uh, a call to teach which touch on teacher retention so maybe we can talk about that uh just briefly uh, we're probably almost out of time but um and how that you've done some coordination across the country talking about getting and retaining teachers and the struggles there so maybe you can just touch on the issue there and then we can talk about you know the coordination that there might be yeah so actually that's a kind of a, a neat a, a neat thing like um so the principals of the schools across the country have for a number of years gotten together um, at what they call the National Principals Conference, which mm -hmm. is the NPC, if you want another acronym to memorize. Always do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the NPC happens every other year. And one year, the BC principals kind of hosted or the Western principals. And the other year, the other time it happens, then the Ontario people host it. And um, what they realize is we're all having issues with a shortage of teachers. So um, at one point in the agenda of the National Principals Conference in 2019, they said, we should talk about this. And it happened that the league had had a league learning day in 2018 around attracting career teachers. And from that day, we had this program called Teach With Us. And it was, um, you know, a variety of initiatives that were done to help communicate about the teaching profession, um, to see if we can attract people into the career, that kind of thing. And so I, at that time in the conference, spoke a little bit about that. We actually also had somebody from Australia who was there and he spoke about the shortage in Australia and what they were doing about that. And so there was a, there was a sense of a mutual challenge that we all face. And uh, so then a couple months later, uh, some BC principals said, why don't we come to Ontario and we'll have a meeting about this. So we met and we talked about what we could do and we decided to have a strategic planning session. And then COVID happened. We couldn't have our strategic planning session. But basically, we brought together people from across the country and the league was involved with that, but it was in partnership with some educational leaders out in 
um, we have we had kind of a steering committee of the principal of the BC High School Credo High, Kent Dykstra, and uh, a board member from the Carmen area, um, Harwin Bauman, and Kevin Hutchinson from the league over here, who he was chair of the league at the time, yep. and myself. And we just were planning this and kind of putting the direction together. And that that was the uh, that was where Teach With Us Canada was born and some new initiatives and, and stuff. So that's a good example, like you were saying, of uh, how can we work together and how can we um, facilitate mutual support uh, for, for leaks. So um, now we have people across the country that are getting together every once in a while to talk about initiatives like developing a scholarship and um, maybe developing a, a part-time learning program for for teachers who, or for professionals who want to transition to a career of teaching. Right. Um, so yeah, like we have a mutual challenge that we talk, talk about. And one of the things that that's become clear to us is that the basis for us working together is really those hallmarks, that shared sense of what a reformed school is. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of our basis for future conversations about how do we keep working together? Um, where might be areas where we can help each other and benefit each other? And uh, right. so we have a couple of people that are going to come down to our January membership meeting with the league, and they're going to represent the RCDC there and give a report about what RCDC is up to and and busy with. Um, another cool way that we've been working together is actually on curriculum. So each province has its own curriculum expectations. But what we've done with the league is we've hosted curriculum development sessions for those conceptual frameworks. And because we have that shared identity in the hallmarks, then it makes sense to communicate that whether you're going to implement it in BC with their curriculum or in Alberta with their curriculum or in Manitoba or in Ontario, the perspective that we have as reformed people about what it means to teach language arts or history or social studies or whatever it might be, we share that. And so it makes sense for us to work together on that. Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. There's definitely some, some shared issues that can, that can really, in that. and so how can, uh, can the Western schools join the league? Can we, uh, you know, I say we now, cause I'm out here, but can, <laughs> I'm working on it, but yeah, can you uh, just promote it out there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is, this is a good part of that, but yeah. is it possible for, for the Western schools to join the league? Is there, is there, uh, efforts to be made there or, or is it more, um, a start, maybe start another group or. What do you, what would you recommend? Yeah. So uh, that's kind of something that we're in terms of future, the league is looking at, does it make sense to try to make this a, a national organization? Um, or does it make sense to just support those schools to have their own organization or, right. you know, how, what, how can we continue working together? Maybe they become uh, a different sort of tier, a different class of membership within the league that maybe they don't have access to the full slate of league resources or whatever, but they are right. still part of our, our organization. But um, I think right now the, the we're at the stage of just let's talk to each other and let's, let's figure out what that might look like going forward. And I think, yeah, there is the identity link that we have as reform mm -hmm. schools, um, who we are, what we want to do with our school. So that I think provides a lot of, foundation for cooperation but because um each province has its own challenges government like the the federal government doesn't mandate education 
like in the, the states, the federal government of the states is more involved in education. Here right. in, in Alberta, it's very much a provincial jurisdiction. Yep. So that that's going to limit how much, you know, what are the challenges that each of us face. So what's what's neat is that actually um, the RCDC has been uh, adding members over the last number of years. So they are um, they are currently representing or or they have membership from all the um all the schools that are not in Ontario. So oh, Manitoba, cool. the two in Manitoba, the four in Alberta, and then the all the BC schools. And there's a school also in Washington, yep. uh, in Linden, Washington, that we've we've been working with a bunch. So that's happened over the last couple of years. And you know, we have a we have a working relationship with them already. So the question is what might next steps look like in terms of uh, more formal partnership, if if it's possible, that's that's where we're at. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's really helpful. I, I mean, yeah, all the best with with the work on the league. It's it's such important work. I like the. It was really helpful to get an understanding of like uh, who we are as Christian Christians and Reformed people, and and get an understanding of you know what is Reformed education to us, and then you know understand that across the country. Um, it's kind of our faith that binds us and not, you know, our, our struggles necessarily. So, um, yeah, is there's anything else you want to add? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the conversation. I think it was, it's been good to, to talk about the league and, yeah. um, I, I'm super thrilled about my work, <laughs> about working with reform schools yep. and, um, and helping them. And uh, so, yeah, it's great to to talk about that with with people and to think about the ways that uh, we can help each other. Because I think that you know that we talk about that unity of purpose. That's true between the local school and the supporting community of the local school, but it's it's true across all of our reform schools as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it just makes sense that we are a hand and foot to each other as we uh, as we struggle and as we seek to offer excellent education to our uh, to our covenant youth i think it, when it comes down to it they're, they're not really our children they're god's children that he has claimed as his own and so we uh we do our best to educate them as he wants us to yeah i mean that's it's a great place to close uh yeah to all the listeners that you know appreciate listening hopefully you got a better understanding of what the league does and and you know it can be confusing with all these acronyms and things but uh to get a better understanding of, you know, how they fit into, you know, our Christian education, you know, model, and then also how they might be utilized too by, by a local board. Um, definitely encourage people to look into the work that they do. Their website's actually great. I don't know if you want to, what's your website? LCRSS? LCRSS.ca is our website. Pretty easy. Yeah. Everyone can go check that out. I mean, it, it lays out all the committees and what they're all working on and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's good to know. It's good to know about. And then, uh, you know, all the best with your work and, uh, to the listeners, thanks for listening. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you in the next one. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks everybody. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of real talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. 
you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.